Good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to see you. Uh, since we've moved indoors, uh, I'm going to be preaching without notes this morning, which is exciting. And if I go a minute past 10, then uh, 10 minutes, then Laura's going to stick a hook around my neck and pull me off. So, right. Uh, so when I preach without notes, it's my custom to pray. So let me do that now. Uh, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Right, well, uh, in the context of the service, as you guys know, we're going to be having our annual celebration. And that means that we're going to be looking forward to all the things that we're hoping that God is going to do in our church over the next year. It also means that we're looking back at all the ways that God has been faithful to our church over the last year. Now, there's a, there's a problem here, and it, soon we're going to get to the real acts, the actual act of thanksgiving. But before we get there, I want to slide tackle a problem, and the problem is 2020. For some of us, it's only going to be a little bit difficult to give thanks this morning. In fact, I've heard some of you in this room say, Actually, the pandemic hasn't been terrible. It's meant that I'm getting more Netflix time than I ever had. I'm getting more time with my family, which could really go either way, but you've claimed that as a good thing. Uh, and, um, and maybe you've been able to work from home. There have been advantages for you. But for others of you, it's been remarkably difficult. For some of you, it's been a, a terminal diagnosis. For others, it's been the death of a parent. For others, the wandering of a child. For some of you, it's just the hangover of election season. Giving thanks is difficult right now, but thankfully there are different ways that we can arrive at a posture of thanksgiving. One is that we just rehearse a litany of all the good things that God has given us. Now, for some of us, that's hard in 2020. So I'm going to suggest another way. And that's why we had this roller coaster punch in the gut from Hosea chapter 10 this morning. A different way to arrive at a posture of thanksgiving is to remind ourselves that it's in the easy times when God's people have throughout history wandered from him. And it's in the hard times when throughout history God has most effectively drawn his people close to him. That's why we're in Hosea chapter 10. Gina was like, what are you doing? Thanksgiving? Yes, yes, Thanksgiving, during the hard times. So I want to draw out two, uh, two lessons from Hosea chapter 10. Two lessons. Here's the first. When times are easy, it is so easy to receive the gifts and forget the giver. So easy to receive the gifts and forget the giver. So if you've got your Bible open, it'll help you immensely to be able to follow along in Hosea 10. It's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. If you've got it open, look at verse one with me. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. Now, Indy read it, and what I want to point out to you about this verse is its combination of two things. On the one hand, prosperity. Israel is a luxuriant vine. On the other hand, idolatry. Things are good. Israel is wandering. Okay? To the extent that their 
profiting, that they're doing well, they're improving their pillars, that is their sacred pillars, their idolatrous uh, monuments. And God uh, diagnoses this. He says their heart is false. Now, a little bit of overview. If you don't know the story of Hosea, Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, working from 755 to 735 BC, thereabout. God calls Hosea into prophetic ministry in order to dramatize God's relationship with his people Israel. So he gets Hosea, and then in the early chapters of the book, we read, God says, Hosea, go, and that prostitute over there, I didn't mean to point at Aaron, that prostitute over there, (laughs) Gomer, marry her. And she's going to be serially unfaithful to you. And in this way, I'm hoping to show my people Israel what they're like with me. God is making this damning indictment of Israel's idolatry. It's like spiritual adultery. And there's this blistering verse back in chapter 2. I think it's verse 16 where God looks forward to the day where he says, finally, you're going to call me my husband again and not my Baal. And the, the brutal thing that's being described there is the lover It's the lovers in the bedroom when one lover says somebody else's name. God is going to bring his people out from this. And ultimately, we know through the course of this book, his intention is to redeem Israel, to bring them back to himself. But before that can happen, there's going to be judgment. So look at the second half of verse 2. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? How easy it is to repeat that very line in our own hearts about the Lord Jesus. Why on earth do I need Jesus? What need do I have of the Lord. I'm doing perfectly well. I've managed to make it through COVID okay. I, I, I've, my business is doing well. Look at, look at my achievements. Look at the list of things I've done. My kids are looking pretty good. What can Jesus, what could he possibly do for me? You picture this, this guy who... Um, who takes his Christianity like he takes the sugar in his tea. Just two lumps, thank you very much. Christmas and Easter, right? And one day, one day this guy's going to come before the Lord, and the Lord, what a terrible thing it will be to stand before Jesus in the day when he's going to stand in judgment on our whole lives, everything that we've worshipped instead of him, substituted for him, and he'll say, what did you say about me? Who did you say that I am? And, and anybody who's thinking in that moment is going to answer like Peter. You're the, the anointed one. You're the king, the Christ, the king, God's king. And then he'll say, I know, I know. That's what you said about me. But what did I do for you? If, the only, if we don't go any farther than two-lump Christianity, then then we're no different here than Israel in verse 3. What could he do for us? What could he do for us? So we get to Paul in Philippians 
And Paul says, I have lost everything. I've suffered the loss of everything in order that I may gain Christ. That's, that's the picture of what the Lord can invite us into during a year like 2020. So the first lesson, it's when the times are easy, that it's so easy to receive the gifts and ignore the giver. But there's a second lesson, and that is that once we've asked the question, what can the king do for me? We have to ask the question, what does the king require of me? So the uh, chapter we're looking at this morning has got two halves, verses 1 to 8, where Hosea is the one talking, and then verses 9 to 15, where God steps up himself, and he's the one who's speaking from the first person. That's the I that we heard speaking. Now, you might think that Israel's waywardness is a fairly neutral thing with God. But no. In fact, God compares them to the Gibeahites. This is perhaps the most brutal, vicious, villainous act recorded in the Bible in Judges 19. It, it wound up it resulted in the wiping out of like 25,000 people of Benjamin. And God is saying, that is still going on. Your salacious, rapacious, violent past is going on right now in your subtle, half-hearted, two-lump Christianity. This is really serious stuff. And God's response to that is judgment. It brackets the whole section. Verse 9 and verse 14 both speak of war. That this is what God is going to bring against Israel on the way to the great healing. And right in the middle of this, right in the middle, are these famous verses, verse 11 and verse 12. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. A trained calf who loved to thresh. In other words, the, the easy work of treading the corn is dead easy, and they get to eat along the way. Easy work, easy pleasure. That's the picture. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord, that he may come and reign righteousness upon you. In other words, the Lord is saying, look, you've spent all this time digging into your fields. You've spent all this time on your, on your achievements, on whatever it, whatever it may be. There is one field, there's only one field that you have left unfallow, that you have left untouched, that you've allowed to remain fallow. And it's the field of, of our relationship. It's our marriage, God says that you haven't touched. And again, the response here is judgment. Now, judgment actually is good news. And if there are people watching online or anybody here in the room who knows that, that maybe every mechanism for justice in our society, even in your family, it's let you down. And there are ramifications of a wrong that has been done to you that has not been righted and will not be righted. Judgment is good news. 
There is one who will sit in judgment. It is good news, but it's also urgent news. It's urgent news for all of us because it presses us on to ask that second question, not just what can a king do for us, but what does a king require of us? And it's right there in verse 13. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. What does the Lord require of us to trust him? To trust him. Do you know the tightrope walker, Charles Blondin? Do you know this, this story? The guy who tightrope walked over the Niagara Falls? He, um, 1,100 feet across, 160 feet high. That's from roughly where you guys are sitting all the way down to the jail. And that's roughly twice as high as uh, the Urban Exchange Building. Okay? A long way. And he would go out and he'd set up the tightrope. And he'd start out with the balance, the balance beam, and he'd take it across like that, and then he'd drop it. And then he would start doing other things. He would do a handstand, and he would walk across. Uh, and then he would come out doing other things. At one point, he brought out a frying pan, and he'd sit and fry an egg and then eat the egg. And then eventually, he'd go out and get a wheelbarrow. He'd take the wheelbarrow across. And then he'd put a sack of potatoes in the wheelbarrow, and then he'd take the sack of potatoes across. So this one time... There's a royal party visiting from England, and the future King Edward VII and some of these English gentry folks are there. And Bodine finishes uh, up. He's taken the wheelbarrow with the potatoes across, and he, he sets it down. He goes right up, and he says, would you like me to take you across? And, <laughs> and they say, no, thank you. And so he shouts out, does anybody else want to go across? And so silence for a minute. And then this, this little wizened old lady comes out through the crowd and pops out. And she says, I'll go. So he sticks her in the wheelbarrow and then takes her across. And it was his mother. His mother was the only one who had, who had set her life in the hands of the son. It's beautiful. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what trust is. That's what trust is. Will you put your life in, in his hands? Well, I'm just going to wrap up quickly. Before I do, just one more thing. If we're going to entrust everything to him, two questions. Is he real? And can he be trusted? And to the first, I just want to say, Yes. If you believe in Julius Caesar and you are a rational person, then you have no reason not to believe in Jesus. Do you know that, so Caesar, writing in the first century BC, has left us 10 manuscripts, the earliest of which dates from 900 AD. Do you know that the New Testament was completed in the first century? We have not 10 manuscripts, but 5,000 and we have the earliest, not from the year 900, but from between 117 and 138 AD. If you are a thinking person who believes in Julius Caesar, there is no ground to stand on in not believing Jesus. No serious theologian, no serious historian doubts his existence for a second. And I'm just saying this 
to remind you that Jesus is real. He walked on the earth. He is a fact of history. And if this is a question that you're just in general, the, the question of the Christian faith that you're interested in digging into more, then I'd encourage you to look into the Christianity Explored course that we're going to be running next year for the first time to learn more about Jesus. Now, the second question, okay, he's real, but is he on our side? Is he on our side? This is the final reason that I chose Hosea 10, because it's all judgment. All of this is judgment. The altars are going to be smashed down. They're going to bear their guilt. The pillars are going to be destroyed. There are going to be poisonous judgments that spring up against them. Their priests are going to mourn. Their king and their idol is going to be carried away. Altars uh, will be covered in thorns and thistles. Terrible, terrible violence and devastation. This is a picture that can get summed up in the simple word hell. And the good news is that while this is all judgment, no one has to bear it. Jesus set up his cross to stand between us and everything here in Hosea 10. And no one has to bear this. In fact, the only way to get to Hosea 10, the only way to get to Hosea 10 is by trampling over the crucified Jesus. It is by climbing over his cross in deliberate, stubborn resilience and determination to get here. Now, the fact is that really, verse 15 is true. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. And the good news is that on the cross, the king of Israel really was cut off. The light and love of the Father, which Jesus the Son had known from all eternity, for him it was extinguished in that moment. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was for you. So that none of this might have to be true for any of us. So we've got lots of things to be thankful for. Don't receive the gifts and ignore the giver.